0: Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you humbly this morning knowing what an absolutely immense privilege it is to worship you in song, to know that you're enthroned on the praises of your people, to worship through baptism, to see your movement in the lives of individuals that give them eternal hope. Lord, we we pray for those who've been baptized this morning that you would allow them to always walk in a manner where they can remember their baptism and they can know what it means to be a part of a people and they can know what it means to be a child of Christ. I pray that they would embrace the joy of being baptized in Christ. And I pray that that would encourage them to walk in faithfulness so that their main purpose in life is to put your glory on display in every way possible. Lord, this morning we want to pray for another local church. I pray for Pastor Bobby Sparks at Emmanuel Missionary Baptist Church. Um, I drive by their building every day. And um, as they talk this morning about how you intercede and how you um, move in the lives of men, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your sovereignty, that you would overwhelm them um, with your very um, undeserved presence Um, as a heavenly father. I pray that Pastor Sparks and his wife, I pray for their marriage, that it's sweet, that they're enjoying you, and I pray that as he preaches this morning that he would be doing so from a heart that is, is, is filled with awe and wonder at the goodness of his God. Lord, we pray um, for our local officials, just in general, this morning, that you would allow them to make wise decisions uh, for the well-being of, of the people in this community. Lord, I pray specifically for our time in Esther this morning, as, as we look at some things that may very well be um, uncomfortable to some who are sitting here this morning, uh, I pray for a spirit-led vulnerability that allows us to reckon with our circumstances and our and our Lord. And I pray for a spirit-led encouragement in the way that we see our Lord moving through the Word. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. This morning, as I said, we'll be in the Book of Esther, so you can go ahead and turn there right after Nehemiah, right before Job. Um, on Wednesday nights. Uh, Here at Crosspoint, we're studying through the Old Testament, and it's an overview study. So in that study, what we do is we cover each book in about two weeks. So obviously, we move fairly quickly and don't spend as much time on it as you could. I mean, we spent years in the book of John. We spent years in in Hebrews now. So we move quickly on that, and, and often I come across sections of Scripture that I feel led to spend more time on in preaching. In the book of Esther... This morning, I have felt led to stop down and spend some time on contentment and trust in trial. That's actually the title of the message. If you're taking notes, which I would always encourage you to take notes, if anything's worth listening to, it's worth thinking about, is what Scripture says, and I always find notes to be helpful when I want to go think about what I've heard. But the title this morning is Contentment and Trust in Trial. And what we're going to be doing this morning is considering if we really trust God, if we really trust God. He's either completely trustworthy in every trial or he's not trustworthy at all. And what we find biblically is if we trust him, we'll find contentment where it would otherwise not be found. So this morning, my hope is for conviction. I hope we hear the word and we're convicted and and we maybe take some areas of our lives that are closed off or off limits and we open them up. And if that happens for you, If you find areas this morning where where you reckon with the reality that you find it difficult to trust God with something in particular, um, I want you to know that God's given you other people to walk through that with you. And so as a church, we need to aim at that. As a church in the coming week, we need to consider how can we walk with each other well in discussing areas where we find it difficult to trust God. Esther is 10 chapters of narrative. So there's really no good way to do like the first three or the last or anything like that. And this is a standalone sermon, so we're knocking out all 10 chapters this morning. Now, um, to do that, we have to climb in to understand what's being communicated. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this bird's eye view of the book, and then we're going to zoom in for some details at the end. We'll be doing a fair amount of reading this morning. I've spoken with some people who say that's usually the time where it's easiest to zone out, is when we're reading. And uh, I'd like to encourage you to work hard not to disengage as we read. Rather, import your senses. Y'all have heard me say that a lot on our Wednesday studies. Import your senses. Be eager as we look at the word this morning. Be eager to hear and eager to smell and eager to see what God has chosen to breathe out in the book of Esther for us to hear this morning. It has been said that trouble seems to be the common lot of humanity. It's been said that trouble seems to be the common lot of humanity. And you can, you can figure that out for yourselves just by asking, when's the last time you went a whole week without engaging trouble of any sort? Or, or when's the last time you went a whole day without engaging trouble of any sort? Or if you have a bunch of kiddos, when's the last time you went five minutes without engaging trouble of any sort? But this morning, I'm not just talking about light inconveniences. This morning, as a, I want us to see as a people that we regularly and consistently encounter desperate and dire circumstances, not just inconveniences. This morning, we're going to be looking at those, those desperate and, and dire circumstances. You don't have to look far to find someone who's been victimized or wronged, to find sickness and calamity, job loss, untimely death of a loved one, natural disasters, Violence, persecution, and all manner of confusion and heartache. Some of us respond to these situations with a hopeless despair, some with an optimistic denial, and others of us, myself, go into control freak mode, where we try to gain control of every single aspect of what's going on so that then we can have peace. Now, I want you to keep all that in the back of your mind as we engage the story of Esther because... This book records one of the most perilous times for God's people in the Old Testament. The book of Esther records one of the most perilous times ever for Israel, for God's chosen people in the entire Old Testament. Even with the craziness of Egypt and the Babylonian exile and wandering around in the wilderness and the uncertainty of life, there may have never been another time that was more filled with desperation and with uncertainty and even with the threat of annihilation. So what we're encountering this morning is a dire and desperate circumstance for God's people, one of the most so that has ever existed. So a little background on chapter one and two. Go ahead and make sure you're in Esther chapter one. You see at the very beginning, it says, now in the days of Ahasuerus, I find Ahasuerus as difficult to say. And in Greek, it's Xerxes, which is more familiar to all of us. So I'm going to say King Xerxes this whole morning so that you don't have to giggle at me stumbling over a Heserus because it's difficult to say. So we're looking at Xerxes and what we need to see in the first two chapters, a little background in Esther. The main detail that we need to take from these first two chapters is that King Xerxes is the very powerful, enormously powerful king of Persia. Israel was taken captive by Babylon in the Babylonian exile, and Persia swallowed up Babylon. So Israel's is kind of a people within a people within a people. Persia swallowed up Babylon who kind of swallowed up Israel. And so this king of Persia is a very, very powerful man. And his queen, Vashti, at the, at the beginning of the book, uh, refused to come to him when he called for her during one of their extravagant parties. So they're having a party in the palace. He calls for his queen. She refuses to come to him. Now, we don't know why. We don't know what the reason is behind that. We don't know if he was drunk and making a fool of himself. We don't know if she was predisposed in the middle of an important conversation. But what we do know is his response in one twelve, And it says this: at this, At this, her not coming to him when he called for her, at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So the king becomes enraged, his anger is burning within him, and he goes and he consults with his council. And their response is found in verses 16 through 22, and it says this, Then Mimican said in the presence of the king and the, and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty, if it please the king. Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who's better than her. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So what we see here right off the bat is this very interesting turn of events where King Xerxes of Persia has rejected his current queen and then something else is about to happen, which we're going to engage. Now, When he rejects the queen, you don't just replace the queen with whoever's closest. You go through this involved process to find who would make a better queen. Their goal is to find someone who's better than she is. And so they want to be careful not to make mistakes. They want to be careful to search out who the new queen will be. So this very thorough search happens all throughout the second chapter of Esther. And at the end of the chapter, in verses 16 through 18, I want you to look at what happens with Esther, who the book is obviously named after. Look at 16. It says, And when Esther was taken to to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen, Instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we have an interesting turn of events where King Xerxes of Persia rejects his current queen. And who takes her place? A beautiful Jewish virgin orphan named Esther is now the queen of Persia. And almost immediately, the king reaps some very great benefits from having chosen Esther as the, as the queen. Look at the next verse, verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So Esther was an orphan and she was raised by her uncle who was named Mordecai, um, likely uncle, and named Mordecai, and she, she trusted him like a father. And he said, you know, as you, as you go into this, this you know, realm of people who might be queen, just keep to yourself what, what people you're a part of and who your heritage is. And she, she obeys him. So now... Mordecai is sitting here at the gate um, where, where the virgins were gathered. And it says in 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, we're going to call him Big Tan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, a eunuch named Big Tan. It's just funny. Um, who guarded the threshold. They became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. You may be remembering that I said this book recorded the most perilous times for Israel. But things seem pretty good so far, right? We have a Jewish queen as the queen of Persia. And now we have Mordecai saved the king's life. And it's recorded in this book that the king will have, and it'll be read forevermore. So things are looking good, right? So, how are these the most perilous times for Israel? Look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict according to all that Haman commanded, remember the name Haman, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate All Jews, young and old, women and men, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly. By order of the king, the decree was issued in Susa, the capital or the, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What just happened? What horrible thing could have possibly happened to cause such a violent edict, an irreversible death edict from the king signed with his signet ring that he seals it? It's irreversible that on this day, 127 provinces of Persia, y'all be ready to kill every Jew, man, woman, old young, and then plunder their goods. What could possibly have happened to cause that turn in events? Why else would Haman want to annihilate the Jews from the earth? And our reason for Haman's movement and going before the king is found in verses 1 through 6 of the same chapter. So turn to 3, 1 through 6, and it says... After Mordecai discovered this plot, after Esther was chosen to be king, it said that after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set him, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, "'Why do you transgress the king's command?' And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And listen to this. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Haman on Mordecai alone, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Do you see the evil movement of Haman here? That guy won't bow down to me. And frankly, it's not enough for me to just deal with that guy. What people is that guy a part of? Oh, the Jews? We're going to kill all of them. This is evil. The, the times are very perilous for the Jews right now. We absolutely cannot miss the dire and the desperate nature of the situation. This situation with Israel and Persia is in step with the kind of evil that Germany exercised toward the Jews under the leadership of Hitler. The goal is annihilation. The goal is to wipe them from planet Earth. God's chosen people to wipe them out because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. Chapter 8 tells us that an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be revoked. It's irreversible. This is an irreversible death edict. That means there's no reversing the reality that they cast lots, and it looks like about a year now from now, there's no reversing the reality that roughly one year from that day, it has been decreed that all 127 provinces of Persia were to come together to wipe out the Jews from the earth. Much like our own constitution, you can't just erase the parts that didn't go as you had planned. This is dire. And so what I want you to do this morning is imagine being a Jew in this situation. Imagine being a Jew. What were some of the thoughts and emotions that they probably had upon hearing that news, that edict from the king? Imagine being married and looking at your spouse, knowing what was coming within a year. Imagine being a parent, And looking at your children, knowing that it's been decreed by the king that they be crushed. Imagine being pregnant, knowing that your beautiful newborn won't even get to enjoy their first year of life. Some of us struggle with anxiety and panic and depression and futility and cynicism in times of uncertainty and threat. And I cannot imagine how oppressive the burden was, how oppressive this news must have been to all of Israel. I cannot imagine being more scared, knowing that everyone who is around you, like imagine your whole neighborhood having a date that they're supposed to wipe you out. I can imagine being more scared, and I cannot imagine feeling less in control. It's irreversible, and I can't do anything about it. I want you to look at how Mordecai and Esther respond to this trial. Let's see how they respond in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, as you can imagine, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the gate, in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law. You go to the king inside the inner court and there's one law if you haven't been called and it's this, to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And Esther says, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to respond to Esther. Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. He's certain about the relief. He's certain about the deliverance. And he tells her, it'll rise from another place. But if you are silent, do not expect that you'll escape like anyone else would. But you and your father's house will perish and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is like the brave heart speech of Mordecai. Who knows if you didn't come for such a time as this. I mean, this is he, is, he is trying to quicken her to do what she needs to do to make an appeal to the king. He sees her as being there for that very reason. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Like we studied in Nehemiah, we see the same thing happening here in Esther. Their response to this trial, their response to this hardship, their response to this uncertainty Is they begin with lamenting, prayer, and fasting. But then a transition is made. And the transition that's made is a transition to where you go from your lamenting and your prayer and your fasting. There's a purpose in that prayer, there's a purpose in that fasting, and it's to make a plan and to take action. What I want us to see this morning in our trials as we're talking about contentment and talking about trust in the midst of our trials is this is wise movement. And it's one of the ways that we exercise trust in God. This is one of the ways that we exercise trust in God. We pray, we fast, we, we lament. It's okay to mourn, but then you, you pray and you take action. It's, it's important for us to never, never use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. Some have said, well, if God wants it to happen, it'll happen. If God doesn't want it to happen, it won't happen. And they leave it there. There's no praying, there's no fasting, and there's certainly no action. And we have to be very careful as people who believe in a very sovereign God never to use his wonderful sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. We pray and we take action. So in chapter 5, Esther does just that. Esther takes action in chapter 5. And what she does is she prepares a banquet. And she invites the king and she invites Haman to the banquet. You can kind of see what's going on here. Haman doesn't know that she knows what she knows, you know, that whole thing. But she's having this banquet and invites the king and Haman. And the king is quite taken with Esther. And he tells her in verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. So she could have died. Instead, she gets offered half the kingdom because he is quite taken with Esther. And for reasons that we don't know, he has just said, okay, Esther, I love you so much. What do you want? And she passes up the opportunity. And it doesn't say why. We can't read that and go, oh, yeah, yeah, what she was doing was exercising wisdom by way. No. She has this perfect opportunity to let her request me. And she, she passes it up. And she decides to wait until the following day where she's going to hold another feast. well, After this first feast, Haman is in a great mood. Now, why would Haman be in a great mood after this first feast? Because his enormous ego has been stroked. Oh man, Haman's feeling good about himself. I got invited to an important party with the king and the queen, and what's he gonna do? I feel good about myself, I'm going out on the town. And so that's what happens in in these next few verses. He heads out into the city, and what we'll see next is a chain of events that are curious, to say the least, But I urge you to pay attention to every detail. Look at verses 9 through 14 in chapter 5. We have this first banquet. She has opportunity. She passes it up. Haman's like, man, I must be awesome to be invited to such a party. He goes out. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons all his promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. That's what narcissistic people do. Self-centered, narcissistic people. He has a dinner party for the purpose of bringing all of his loved ones in to remind them of how incredibly awesome he is. He's bringing out all his trophies, all his, all his certificates of, of completion, all the things that he did, all the promotion. Y'all remember that year where I did that awesome thing? And everyone's, yes, yes, Haman. We remember, completely narcissistic, self-centered dinner party for Haman because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. And tremble before him. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king to yet another feast. Then he says, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, his lovely wife Zeresh, And all his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Just kill someone. You'll feel better, and you'll be able to go enjoy yourself at that feast. Good friends, good good, good, uh, encouragement. And this idea pleased Haman, And he had the gallows made. We're talking about someone so narcissistic, so self-centered that he has this dinner party and they say, you should just kill that guy from a really high, hang him from really high gallows. And he's like, yeah, all right, you hundred people, make these gallows tonight. That's, I mean, it's just like this emotional, ridiculous movement. He is ready for Mordecai to die. Now, that very night, something remarkable happens. We don't have any time pass between the end of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six because chapter six, the beginning says, on that night, the king could not sleep. Hang in there. Pay attention to these details. On that very night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai, had told uh, about Big Tan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, you know, middle of the night, he's up reading because he can't sleep. He says, hey, what, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Anyone, y'all know Mordecai? Did we, did we do anything for Mordecai? He's, it says he saved my life. The king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. I read this, I'm just wondering if Mordecai was like, for real, man? I saved your life? I didn't get anything? Nothing? Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court right now? Who who of my officials is out in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace, particularly to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on those big gallows that he had made the night before, that he would prepared for him. And the king's young men told the king, Haman is there. He's standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? This guy is so ridiculous. He is completely full of himself. So the king says, if I wanted to honor someone, how would you do that? And he's kind of like, well, I got a few ideas. Who would he want to delight more than me? So he says that to himself. And then he says, And then Haman said to the king. So he says something to himself, stroking his own ego. And then he says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be bought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. It sounds like someone wants to be king, maybe. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And you know what? Let's not stop there. Let's lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before that man who you want to honor. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horses you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do you know where the king's gate is? Do you know where he sits? Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. If you don't think the Lord has a sense of humor, even in our deep, dark trials, this is amazing. Yes, yes, do that. Hurry, hurry. Don't leave anything out, Haman. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, and I can only think it sounded like Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I don't think there was a lot of fervor and passion in his voice as he honored Mordecai by the king's command. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wife, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him, but you'll surely fall before him. Prophetic words from his family. The king who could command 127 provinces. The king who had the power to remove the queen because she didn't come to him at a dinner party. The king who had the power to choose Esther because that was who he found most beautiful and most wonderful. The king who can send out an irreversible death edict and no one can dispute it. The same king cannot command one hour of sleep. And look what God does with the king's sleeplessness. He draws the king's attention to something unexpected, yet very timely. And in the very next chapter, in chapter 7, they have the second feast, and Esther makes her request. All of this stuff just lined up in a perfect way. And they have this feast, and Esther says, you know what? Why does Haman want to kill me and everyone who's a part of my people? And she spills the beans. Esther makes her request and Haman is revealed for who Haman is. Guess what the king does? The king hangs Haman on the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai. The night before. Furthermore, he gives Haman's house to Esther who decides it's a good idea to appoint Mordecai over it. That's kind of where you're like, oh, dang. That just happened. That just happened. He is over Haman's house. If ever we've seen a picture of justice and dominion, this is it. So there's something to rejoice over. I mean, these these two are saved. Mordecai's not going to die, Haman's out of the picture, and Esther has the king's um, trust and has the king's, um, uh, the king adores her. And things are looking good for these two. But in this justice and in this dominion, the fact that the two of them were were saved was not enough. This is what we see next. The fact that Mordecai and Esther were saved from this certain death was not enough because what's happened? Remember, the edict had already gone forth and by law could not be taken back. So in an effort to right Haman's wrongs, the king gives Mordecai the signet ring. And Mordecai drafts a new edict allowing the Jews in every city to gather and defend their lives. Defending your own life wasn't even part of the original edict. It was you sit there and you take the death. But now another edict comes forth from the king saying, we can't undo that even though Haman was dishonest. But what we can do is give the Jews an opportunity to escape death. So now there's something more than certain death in their future. There's a way of escaping death. And in 8.16 of Esther, it says that the Jews, at this news, it says that they had light and gladness and joy and honor. Light and gladness and joy and honor because they had something else to look forward to than the dark reality of certain death. And in chapter 9, the Jews prevail over their enemies And they institute a new feast called the Feast of Purim, where they remember when Haman cast lots, which the word for that is pure, and the Lord delivered them. So they they institute this feast where they say, the Lord delivered us, and we're going to remember this forevermore. Some of you may be thinking right now, okay, I'm glad it all worked out well for the Jews. What about my trial?" Some of you may see that story and say, wow, that's, just, that's poetic. Wow. I mean, wow. But well, what about the nightmare I'm going through? Some of you feel like your whole life has been nothing but trial. And I want us to be really, really honest right now. I think if we're honest, some of us will look at the unfair and the unjust things that we've been through Or we'll look back at a particularly horrible event. And we'll say, you know what, I hope God was snoozing. Can we be honest about that for a moment? Some of us may look at the trials that we've been through, the things that have challenged us in such a difficult manner. And we may look at that and we say, you know what, I see that. But in what I went through, I hope God was snoozing. Some of us have gone through such nightmarish heartache victimized, shamed, wronged, sinned against. Some in here have had to bury their own children. Some have struggled with infertility. Some have battled battled mental illness, physical illness, emotional distress, and have been on the receiving end of what can only be classified as unnecessary evil. And I think in our hopeless confusion, at times we'd rather believe that God was snoozing He better not have allowed that, is what we would say. He better not have allowed that. That better not have been part of his plan. Don't tell me that in my darkest moment that that was part of God's plan. Frankly, it's a cry from a confused heart that says, please, don't connect my God to what's happened. Don't connect my God to this horrible job situation, or the circumstance that I've been through, or whatever. Don't connect God to that. Because if what I have been through was part of God's plan, then it's hard for me to believe that God's love. If he has had any hand in my trial, it's hard for me to trust him with my past or my future. Please tell me that this one just slipped by him. There are moments where you would rather believe that you must have been temporarily forsaken. There's moments, I've experienced it, where it's like, man, I kind of wish I was temporarily forsaken than believing God had any hand in this. But God wants you to know in those moments that he's always working for your good. Always. What we have to see this morning is that his promises remain true even when we can't understand how they remain true. And in the moment of your heartache, God doesn't tell you to buck up because he's sovereign on his throne. When you're still reeling in confusion from some calamity or some loss, God doesn't heartlessly tell you just to quit crying. Rather, he surrounds you with people who are told to weep with you. And when there's a break in the weeping, our loving and merciful God commands those same people to speak his words to you that you might be edified. And if there's need that arises from whatever you've gone through, God tells those same people to pour themselves out for you to seek to lift your burden, the burden of whatever affliction you're under. And not only that, God gives us a spirit, a spirit that was moving mightily through the book of Esther, a spirit that produces peace when peace is hard to come by. A spirit that produces joy when you think that joy has been robbed from you forever. And in Christ, our Lord gives us access. Paul talks about this in Philippians 4. But in Christ, our Lord gives us access, allowing us to come before him with all of the confusion and all of our questions and all of our anxiety. And when we surrender it to him, scripture says that he gives us peace that exceeds understanding. And he guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We can't always see that. We can't always understand that. But he tells us that's a certain reality. And for all of us who struggle with kind of being control freaks, it's a really great reminder that peace is not the same thing as understanding. According to those verses, peace exceeds and is more important and even greater than understanding. Because for me, when I'm in my control freak mode, I'm like, give me understanding and I will have peace. But peace isn't the same thing as understanding. And in fact, Scripture says it's up here when sometimes understanding may not be. My hope, this sermon's difficult because there's not this, now go and do this application. It's these realities, these eternal realities, these things that, that, that will comfort people who have a continual awareness of God's presence and that will comfort people who have an eternal perspective. Because if we don't have an eternal perspective, we're too wrapped up in the temporary, and these comforts won't set in. So I'm praying that the Spirit moves mightily in this because my hope is that these deep realities are a foundation for you in your trials. What we've talked about this morning, what we've seen in Esther, it doesn't make perfect sense of what you've gone through. And it doesn't make perfect sense of what you will go through. But it does give us a foundation to stand on so that we're not undone. So that we don't see faith as something to abandon or life as something to abandon. So that we can trust God even when it feels like we can't trust anybody. Romans eight twenty eight says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. I'd like to close with some sweet God-given encouragement from the book of Esther. Never has there been a more perilous, uncertain, dire time for the people of Israel. And this encouragement that we see in the book of Esther is in reference to the providential movement of God. The providential movement of God. With the exception of Song of Solomon, I want you all to know that the book of Esther is the the only other one in Scripture where God's name is not explicitly mentioned. Pay attention to that detail, please. Did y'all realize that as we were reading? All that text that we covered this morning, God's name was never mentioned in the book of Esther. Yet we see his fingerprints all over it. So often in these anxiety-laden circumstances where hope is really hard to come by, many look to God for miracles. We look to God for miracles. God, I don't see any other possible way for me to have any comfort or relief from this particular affliction or this particular trial unless you perform some crazy miracle. And so we go to God for miracles. But what what happens is that we forget about the providential movement of God. What I mean is that the God who worked miracles in exercising dominion over Egypt is the same God who isn't even mentioned as he exercises perfect dominion over Persia. You see that? Don't limit your God to the way he can move, and the way he can work his kingdom to move forward, and the way that he can bless you in it. He's exercising perfect dominion over the king of Persia and everyone in it, all 127 provinces, and he's never even mentioned, but his fingerprints are all over it. We must never forget that God often works through the normal actions of people in the normal order of life. He's done more today than you realize. God works sovereignly with no apparent miracles, just a whole lot of happenings and just the right circumstances. I want you to consider the details from the book of Esther. I'm gonna read a list. Sometimes we'll say, what a coincidence. Well, if you believe in coincidence, I would urge you to consider replacing coincidence with sovereign, strong, providential movement of God. Because check out all of this stuff. Esther just happens to be Jewish. She just happens to be beautiful. She just happens to be favored by the king. Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel down before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai is a Jew. And when Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting such revenge is put off for almost a year. Esther happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off her request one more day. And her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one more time, which just happens to cause him to have his narcissistic dinner party and recount his awesomeness to his friends. And they, in turn, just happened to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. So Haman just happens to be excited to approach the king early the next morning, and it just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's sleep. And he just happened to have a book. And he just happened to have that book brought to him, and that book just happened to open to the place where Mordecai's, Mordecai's deed was recounted. He then happened to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded, to which his attendants happened to know the answer. And Haman just happens to approach the king when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. And the gallows that Haman builds for Mordecai just, just happened to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. For me, this is immensely helpful. It's immensely helpful as I walk with people through very real heartache and tragedy. Because here's what happens. If there's a particular week where I see one too many horrifying things, I can easily slip into the cynical mindset that concludes, you know what? People stink, and this world is just a cruel set of unfortunate circumstances and disorder, It's easy to forget about the providential movement of God. It's easy when you're looking your greatest nightmare in the face to forget about all the other things God's doing around there. But this reality is one that is a foundational reality that we stand on in our trials, and it's helpful. Because the book of Esther helps to reinstate a proper sense of awe. Remembering that God is working his will in far more circumstances than I realize, even the circumstances that feel hopeless even the circumstances that feel unnecessarily evil, like Haman trying to annihilate the entire Jewish population. Remember, God does not necessarily deliver us from our trials, but he always delivers us through them. That's what it says in Romans. It says, nothing separates us from the love of God, not death, nakedness, persecution, danger, the sword. And it says, no, end these things, we're more than conquerors. So that doesn't mean that he necessarily delivers us from our trials, but our Lord is so good to us to deliver us through them for his glory and for our good. So it's not just after such trials, but even in the very nightmarish midst of them that we can have contentment and that we can have trust in our Lord. Lord, I confess that even as it comes off of my lips, this message is hard. It confronts us in our most vulnerable areas. It asks us to lower our guard and consider how we're trusting our Lord when we want nothing more than to keep our guard up. Lord, I'm thankful for your word and how you have breathed it out that we can be competent and equipped. And that's what I pray for this morning. I pray for competence in our trials. And I pray for an equipping from you by the power of the spirit that allows us to stand firm because we have an eternal perspective on all things rather than crumbling and falling into hopeless despair when things go wrong. Lord, I pray that your people are encouraged by your providential movement. Lord, I pray that we would go from here maybe eager to take some time to consider some of those details that we missed along the way. And you have people sitting here for a particular reason, all of which got here in different ways. I'm so thankful, Lord, that it's not up to us. It's not up to us to do something just the right way or to say something just the right way or to formulate a Sunday morning service just the right way, but you move in your providential brilliance and your wisdom that's lacking in nothing, and you you bless us so immensely as a loving shepherd who never leaves us and who never forsakes us. Lord, please give us understanding as we think over what we've heard from your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name.